If you, um, if you don't know me, uh, my name's Mike. I'm married to... Oh, Sarah's over there, yeah. Um, we, uh, we run the Fire Starters Ministry and also help uh, run the Healing Centre. Um, and my task tonight is to carry on the, uh, the uh, topic that we've been following uh, here at Eastgate for the past few weeks and months, which is going through the book of Luke. Uh, and my passage tonight is Luke chapter 12, verses 1 to 21. Now, um, whenever you get a preaching assignment, you always turn with eager expectation to the passage to see, you know, what have I got? Uh, and is, is it going to be the prodigal son story? I love the prodigal son story. Oh, no, that's Luke 16. That's not, no, it's not that. Is it the storm? It can't be the storm. I preached on that a few weeks ago. No, that's Luke 8. Um, or is it going to be a healing? Because I love to preach about healing and... And Luke is a doctor. He's always talking about healing. Uh, so with eager anticipation, I turn to my passage. And in my Bible, the section that I'm preaching on is headed with this. Titles, uh, warnings, and encouragements. Okay, good start. Um, let's have a look a bit deeper what this chapter is about. So what have I got? I've got hypocrisy, then hell, then the unforgivable sin, and then the rich fool who loses everything and is judged by God. I think I'm on punishment detail. <laughs> so um, I have been mulling on this passage and, uh, you know, thinking how can I sort of, you know, quick illness, um, unexpected holiday, you know, all these things that you can do to try and avoid, you know, dealing with the tricky stuff. But actually, you know, God really, really started to speak to me about this passage. And, and I'm so grateful for what happened uh, early in the service because... Um, it just confirmed to me the message that God wanted to share. So, um, so let me just share with you what God's been talking to me about. And one of the things that I was musing about this passage is, um, what is a warning? Um, what's it about? And so I looked up the definition, and a warning is a statement or event that warns of something or serves as a cautionary example. Now, I don't know about you, but I find some warnings more useful than others. Um, now this warning, oh, I've got to remember to do it on yours as well, uh, that a packet of walnuts may contain traces of nuts <laughs> doesn't seem particularly helpful. I mean, I know shops like to water down the contents, but I think, to be honest, it's a pretty poor shop where there's so few traces of nuts in there they don't need to put a warning on. <laughs> Equally mystified, I want to know, who ordered this sign to be made? This sign has sharp edges. Don't touch the edges of the sign. This one seems fairly self-evident, to be honest. Um, water on the road during the rain. I, I suppose it's helpful for some people, but I would guess most people could work that out by themselves. Or this one. Um, it, it, it's a bit pedantic, but, you know... If you, re- you know, kids in the car, what's coming up? Well, actually, son, I can tell you, absolutely nothing for 22 miles. This warning sign is actually practical in a fairly useless sort of way. Um, you know, if you actually did need an emergency telephone, it might be helpful to know it's 174 kilometers away. But beyond that, really not much help. Some warnings can put you off a bit. Soft shoulder, blind curve, steep grade, big trucks, good luck. So, um, you know, that's quite helpful. Some are actually, you know, pointed. 
slow down or die. And some warnings come a little bit too late. I like the way that they've done the prepare for the unexpected sign where the post runs through the car crushed by the tree. Not much help for the driver of the vehicle. But some do have a practical value. I saw this one at a Christian um, camp ministry called Grapevine. Don't forget to go to the toilet before your meeting. Now, I wasn't sure if it was aimed at the men with prostatism uh, or the kids, but it was a useful reminder nonetheless. But there are some warnings that are blown all out of proportion. Let's just go back to this sign. Now, can you see the real purpose behind the sign? Because right at the bottom, in really small writing, it says, oh, also the bridge is out ahead. Now, if I was driving along, enjoying the journey, which do you think is the bigger risk to me? The overwhelming impulse to stop the car, get out and stroke the sign? (laughs) Or is it more important that I'm not driving along and suddenly discover there's an important piece of equipment missing, like the bridge? Now, the problem with this sign is someone got it out of proportion and they they forgot what the main message was. And I think it's important that we remember that when we read this passage. So let's turn to Luke 12. Um, Meanwhile, when a crowd of many thousands had gathered, so they were trampling on one another, Jesus began to speak first to his disciples. Now, I just want to pause here. Just imagine the scene. A crowd of many thousands are gathering, all wanting to see him, touch him, get some healing, huge, huge pressure for Jesus to do something. But what does the Bible say he does? He says, actually, he talks to his friends. He has a little private conversation. So he says, be on your guard against the use of the Pharisees, which is hypocrisy. Now, you need to remember the context, and if you're in the morning service this morning, you'd know the context, because Donna preached on it. But... um, Jesus just had a load of negative encounters with the Pharisees and the, uh, the lawmakers. He's just had a, a meal with one in Luke 11, and that's where he gets so fed up with their religiousness that he basically lets rip uh, for doing the outward things, you know, tithing the dill, mint and cumin, and, and forgetting to do the really basic stuff, like, you know, neglecting justice and the love of God. So this is what's on his mind as he's talking to them. Be on your guard. So, he then goes on to say, There is nothing concealed which will not be disclosed or hidden that will not be made known. What you have said in the dark will be heard in the daylight, and what you have whispered in the ear in the inner rooms will be proclaimed from the roofs. Now, just so you know, I've done my background biblical research that all preachers must do. It turns out that it was a habit in those days. If you had a storeroom, you'd put it in the middle of your house so that actually people, because obviously the, the you know, mud walls and stuff, people could actually dig a hole and nick stuff. So they put their storerooms on the inner part of the house. So basically that was saying that, that what you whisper in your most secure secret place. Um, 
And also some people feel that, you know, what Jesus is saying is, you know, what you've said as disciples to people that hasn't really been very loud, very registered, at one point it's going to be really magnified and it's going to be proclaimed from the rooftops, which is effectively what happens in Pentecost. Um, so basically Jesus is saying, you know, this, the secret stuff is going to come out. And he says, I tell you, my friends, don't be afraid who kill, of those who kill the body and after that can do no more. But I will show you whom you should fear. Fear him who, after killing the body, has the power to throw you into hell. Yes, I tell you, fear him. Now, don't forget, Jesus is still talking to his disciples here. But what's he saying? He's he's talking about hell. The word he uses is Gehenna, which derives its name from a deep ravine in Jerusalem. And uh, those of you who are biblical scholars may know that in the reigns of Ahaz and Manasseh, they were both wicked kings in the Old Testament, they used to sacrifice humans there um, to the Ammonite god Molech. So basically, um, what he's talking about is something like this. It's a dumping ground where basically there was almost constant flames. And in that day, it becomes synonymous with the lost, with those who are outside um, their relationship with God. Now, this is a particularly tricky passage for some people because it's not very fashionable to believe in hell. And it's not very fashionable to believe that Jesus believes in hell. Um, I came across this quote on the internet. Love your enemies is what Jesus says to his disciples. And the uh, writer says this is another powerful scripture that absolutely proves that Jesus didn't believe in hell. Um... Well, no, because he talks about hell. Um, but I've heard it many times, and maybe you have. You know, how can a loving God send somebody to hell? Well, um, we had a couple in our, an old church that we were part of. And they were worship leaders, and they had a small group. But in the end, actually, they left our church because they couldn't cope with the idea that there was a hell. But this passage makes it clear. It's one of his warnings. Jesus knows there is one. His primary mission was to save us from it. God gives us a choice, and it's down to us whether we accept it. He gives us free will. He doesn't force a decision on us. He gives us freedom. He tells us about something, and it's up to us what we do about it. We have the freedom to choose, even if we choose unwisely. Um, Some of you know, uh, a few years ago, when I was in surgery up north, um, it was one summer evening and uh, one of my receptionists came in to say Richard had come and wanted to speak to me. And my surgery was over and I was winding down and I was tired and said, He's, he really wants to see you tonight. And I thought, oh, because Richard had a problem with alcohol. And uh, I was very tempted to say, to say, oh, no, leave it. But something in me said, no, speak to him. So I called him in and he sat down and he said, I shouldn't be here. And I thought, no, you're right. You you really, really shouldn't. Now, Richard gave me his permission to tell me his story, to tell you his story, uh, or to to use his story. And he said, no, no, you don't understand. Last night, I drove to a quiet part, uh, a quiet place I know. I parked up my car. I drank a bottle of whiskey. And then I attached a hose to the back of my car. And then I turned the engine on. And I felt myself dying. So I said, what happened? He said, well, while I was asleep, I ran out of petrol. <laughs> so I woke up this morning. 
So I shouldn't be here. I thought, no, you really shouldn't. Um, so, you know, he was in bits and, and I got him admitted and, uh, you know, we dealt with, with some of his issues. And, and over the course of the next few weeks and months, um, I had the privilege of, of finally actually leading him to Christ. Um, and uh, he started coming to a church and I, he became a, a friend. And, uh, but the thing is, he still had free will. And actually, he went back to alcohol. And uh, he went back to drinking quite a lot. And although I did everything I could to talk to him about uh, what the way it was going to go and what he you know, offered him, every option I had available to me, he chose to carry on that pathway. And actually, ultimately, um, the word came to me that he actually died. Now, I don't believe he's gone to hell at all. I, you know, I believe he made a genuine commitment. But my point is that God gave him free will about how he lived his life. And that's what Jesus and God does still. So, you know, when he tells us things, when he makes us warnings, he gives you a choice about what you do about them. Now, other things can be, you know, a cautionary example. I think this church is a cautionary example about how not to write a sign. Don't let your worries kill you. Let the church help. But you see, Jesus has a purpose behind his warnings, not so much for this church. But he also has encouragements in this passage. So let's read on. Are not five sparrows sold for two pennies? Yet not one of them is forgotten by God. Indeed, the very hairs of your head are all numbered. Don't be afraid. You're worth more than many sparrows. I tell you, whoever acknowledges before men, the Son of Man will also acknowledge him before the angels of God. Now, I don't know if you're aware, but the bog-off is a biblical concept. Because in those days, um, the poor people used to eat birds for their food. And sparrows were the cheapest of the birds so basically, uh, in the Bible, in, according to Matthew 10:29, you could purchase two sparrows for an Assyrian, which is a small copper coin. Think, you know, widow's mite, putting two small copper coins into the treasury. Now, in Luke 12, they're even ch- cheaper if you buy them in bundles. Because if you get five, an extra sparrow is thrown in for free. You know, one for every four. But Jesus says... That God doesn't forget one of them. So even that sparrow that has no value whatsoever is something that God keeps track of. It has literally no commercial value whatsoever. And Jesus says God keeps track of that. And this, I think, is fundamental importance for us as people. You see, we've just had Danny Silk here. Last year we had Bill Johnson and we've got Pete Carter and David Webster and and the directors. And, you know, we have all these important people in the church. You know, and it's possible to think they matter. God must really care about them because he's using them. He's using them mightily. But what about little old me? How do I factor in? I was reminded of, um, of a film, You've Got Mail. It's a bit old now. 
But Meg Ryan plays this character, Kathleen Kelly, and she says this, and I wonder if it resonates with any of you. Sometimes I wonder about my life. I lead a small life. Well, valuable, but small. And sometimes I wonder, do I do it because I like it or because I haven't been brave? So much of what I see reminds me of something I read in a book. When shouldn't it be the other way around? I don't really want an answer. I just want to send this cosmic question out into the void. Does that resonate with anyone? You ever wondered, you know, how much does it matter if I'm here or not here? How much does God value what I do? Well, my wife Sarah, some years ago, was saying something similar to God. She said to him, I think I'll lead a small life. But God said to her, no, actually, the Lord God, the creator of the universe, lives inside you. How can you lead a small life? And I think, for me, this is a fundamental passage about what this whole section is about. God wants to be in relationship with you. He knows and cares about everything in your life and every little bit about you. Everyone is valuable. No one doesn't count to God. Now, while we're in that warm, fuzzy feeling and Jesus is, you know, just getting us right with God and we're confident of our Father's love and his minute care of us, we turn back to what he goes on to say. But he who disowns me before men will be disowned before the angels of God. And everyone who speaks a word against the Son of Man will be forgiven. But anyone who blasphemes against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven. Hmm. So just as we're feeling good about ourselves, this whole unforgivable sin thing crops up. Now, you know, I don't know about you, but sometimes the unforgivable sin is wrapped in a bit of mystery. No one always seems to talk about it. It's a bit like sort of, you know, Lord Voldemort. It's a thing that you can never really talk about. You know, it's just out there. And you're never really sure what it is or what what you have to do. Um, But you know it's there. Um, some people get really hung up, some Christians get really hung up about the unforgivable sin, and you can live in a perpetual state of anxiety. Have I done it? I better check if I've done it. God, have I done it? Is it too late? Am I on the wrong side? Because once you're unforgivable, once you're there, you're there. There's no going back. But the truth is, it's possible to scare a witness about something that's not actually a problem at all. A woman once came to see me years ago, and she was really, really nervous. I could tell, you know, when they come in ashen face. And she said, I've got a lump. Now, actually, when you first have a woman sit down and talk, talk about lump, you think um, breast cancer. And I said, so where's this lump? And she went, here. And it moves. <laughs> now, tempted as I was... To really wind her up. The truth was she was scared witless. So I had the great pleasure of reassuring her that it was entirely normal and natural and not a problem at all. It was her Adam's apple and she'd had it all her life and she just happened to have noticed it. As sometimes people do with their bodies. And that could be true. I think that's true of the unforgivable sin. Some people really, really, really get worried about it. And actually, it's not a problem. Because the basic truth is, if you're worried about it, you haven't done it. 
Because actually that just shows you've got an active conscience. And if you have an active conscience, then God is still prompting you about things. So you're safe. So what is it? Well, I've heard a few explanations. Um, A couple that I think probably make most sense to me. One is that um, maybe the the unforgivable sin is basically when you go to your death and you haven't accepted Jesus. Because basically once you're dead, you're dead. And there is actually no turning back. So that is the unforgivable one. You can't then, you know, not accepting Jesus is a sin you can't be forgiven for because it's too late. That is one possibility, but I have to be honest, for me, the one that makes most sense is is, is when you understand this passage in its context. Because you need to look at what's just happened in chapter 11. Um, We had some of it this this morning, but in in Luke 11, we read in verse 14, Jesus was driving out a demon that was mute. And when the demon left, the man who had been mute spoke, and the crowd were amazed. But some of them said, by Beelzebub, the prince of demons, he's driving out demons. So that's the context. I think this is what is in Jesus' mind when, he, when he's talking about this. Because the Pharisees were looking at something that clearly was an act of God through the Holy Spirit. And they're saying, that is satanic. And I think that, for me, is what Jesus is talking about being the unforgivable sin. God works on earth through the Holy Spirit. If you categorically say something the Holy Spirit is doing is satanic, you disrupt your relationship with him. And how can you be open to him about anything else? If you're so mistaken about what the Holy Spirit's up to that you think that's demonic, you know, you just your relationship with him is completely ruined. And if he's that estranged from you, then I believe that you've, your, your relationship with him may, is... Because how else do you get established with God? Through the Holy Spirit. It's the Holy Spirit who does all the things that bring you to God. And basically, if you said to him, I don't want you, then there's no way back. So... This, for me, tells me that that is what's on Jesus' mind. Because when Jesus goes on to say, When you're brought before synagogues, rulers and authorities, do not worry about how you'll defend yourselves or what you will say, for the Holy Spirit will teach you at that time what you should say. And remember, he's only speaking to the disciples here. His mind is on the Holy Spirit. He's thinking about what the Pharisees have said and what they've done and what their relationship with the Holy Spirit is like. And that's why he's saying, yeah, and, and yeah, the Holy Spirit, what's he, he's just going to be part of your lives. And when you run into trouble and you have to justify yourself to these people, the Holy Spirit's going to come in and he's going to give you what you need. Jesus is just referring to that intimate relationship that we've been receiving tonight, experiencing tonight. So when you disrupt that relationship and say, oh, it's the devil's work, that's when you're in trouble. Does that make sense? Good, okay. So a change of of gear. Because now the Bible goes on to make it clear that Jesus is turning attention to the crowd. Until now, he's just been having a private conversation. Never mind the thousands. He's just been chatting with his friends. But then someone in the crowd says to him, Teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. And Jesus replied, Man, who appointed me a judge or an arbiter between you? Then he said to them, Watch out, be on your guard against all kinds of greed. 
A man's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. And then he told them this parable. Now, do you remember we talked about this sign earlier and I said the warning was the wrong way around. The really important thing was the little bit at the bottom and the really naff thing was the bit they spent their time and effort on. I think that's the key. When you read this bit, you can get hung up by things like, you know, uh, hypocrisy and, and the unforgivable sin. But actually, this parable that Jesus goes on to tell, for me, is the, is the thing that's the biggest issue. So what does he say? The ground of a certain rich man produced a good crop. He thought to himself, what shall I do? I have no place to store my crops. Then he said, this is what I'll do. I'll tear down my barns and build bigger barns. And then I'll store all my grain and my goods. And I'll say to myself, you have plenty of good things laid up for many years. Take life easy. Eat, drink, and be merry. But God said to him, you fool. This very night your life will be demanded from you. Then who will get what you've prepared for yourself? This is how it will be when anyone stores up things for himself but is not rich towards God. So what are we to make of this story? Is God a socialist? Does he think that uh, property, financial planning, pensions are wrong? Is he against a good time? Is this farmer being punished for wanting to have a pleasant life? Well, no. I think the key is this final verse. This is how it will be with anyone who stores up things for himself, but is not rich towards God. The verse is conditional. The problem wasn't that the rich farmer was wealthy. That although materially had a lot of stuff, the problem was he was spiritually bankrupt. It's funny. um, Emily prophesied a song just about striving this evening and I was looking at what striving meant it means to make great efforts to achieve or obtain something the rich fool's problem was he was striving for the wrong thing Wall Street sums it up for me Um, I don't know if you've seen that film Uh, it's a bit hammed up but basically you know it's all about the right car or the right house, the right clothes, um, the right job, the right promotion. People can devote their entire lives to how they look, where they live. Have they got the right postcode? Have they got the right title? The right number of degrees after their name? The right kind of web presence? Do they get to be at the front of the church? It's the acquisition of things. It's the nice car. It's, you know, having a house that's full of nice things. The Western world is obsessed with stuff. That's all your house is? It's a pile of stuff with a cover on it. You see that when you take off on an airplane and you look down and you see everybody's got a little pile of stuff. Everybody's got their own pile of stuff. And when you leave your stuff, you've got to lock it up. Wouldn't want somebody to come by and take some of your stuff. They always take the good stuff. They don't bother with that crap you're saving. Apologies for that. Nobody interested in your fourth grade arithmetic papers. They're looking for the good stuff. 
That's all your house is? It's a place to keep your stuff while you go out and get more stuff. <laughs> Now, sometimes, sometimes you've got to move. You've got to get a bigger house. Why? Too much stuff. <laughs> you've got to move all your stuff. And maybe put some of your stuff in storage. Imagine that. There's a whole industry based on keeping an eye on your stuff. Stuff. Now, I have to be honest. Um, when I was um, reading this, uh, when I've read this psalm before, uh, this, this passage before now, and uh, read about the rich fooler, I, you know, have you ever read this Bible and you've got that sort of warm sense of, that's not me? You know, it's like when the Israelites sort of bottle it in the desert. You know, if I was there, I wouldn't have done that. You know? Well, when I've read about the rich fool, I thought, yeah, what an idiot. You know, all his life going after these things, and then finally the last minute God says, what have you been doing with your life? But the thing is, actually, um, you might well be doing it, but just in a different way. Um, some of you will know that uh, we've just recently moved and uh, from the house on the left to the house on the right and I've also um, got a new job and that all has things that, that you have to take on board and be aware of and you know, there's decorating and, and choices and all that kind of stuff and alongside that we've done some stuff for the church as well you know, we've led uh, missions to places and you know, preached once or twice and then our kids were going to university and uh, When I was reading this passage when I was first given it, I felt God say to me, do you realize that you're not a lot different from the rich fool? Because actually you're obsessed at the moment with all these other things. You've actually, your mind is preoccupied with houses and work and, you know, and I realized that actually I'd had a quiet time for months. And I realized that actually my attitude was changing, that work was actually, I mean, ch church was coming a bit like a job. You know, it was just somewhere when I was just getting more diary dates, you know, more meetings. And I thought, hold on a minute. My mind has become obsessed with stuff, with things of this world. And I was slowly morphing into the rich farmer, totally absorbed in my life and work. So... What's the answer? Well, it's easy. You just have to go back to the key verse. This is how it will be with anyone who stores up things for himself but not rich towards God. We need to make ourselves rich in God. So what does that look like? Well, I like what Coco Chanel says. There are people who have money and people who are rich. So what does being rich in God looks like? Well, one answer is to listen to James's preach last Sunday night. Because if ever there's an example of someone rich in God, it's James. It was fantastic. I, I hope you, uh, if you, if you didn't hear it, dig it out and listen to it. Because what he's describing is someone who's rich in God. You know, who just, I can't do the expression, it's sort of in the car. In the car, just, you know, being with God. For me, uh, it's summed up, uh, by, this picture sums up something, but um, for me it's about my relationship, my identity with God. Um, it's about understanding who you are, that you're a son or a daughter of the king. He chose you to be in relationship with you. 
So what does being rich in God look like? Well, it doesn't look like chasing possessions or money. Either for you, or and it doesn't look like how much you give to, to the church either. Because the Bible says that God's got enough. I own the cattle on a thousand hills. God's not short of funds. He's not short of resources. And he holds nothing back from his family. So if he's got all these resources, I don't need to chase for them. What does being rich in God look like? Well, it doesn't look like trying to get a high position in the church or to be famous. Because the Bible says that Jesus has already given you the glory which God gave him. So you have already, as a free gift, all Jesus' glory. Now top that if you can, because I can't. So does it really matter if you're at the front of the church or the back? Or if the, the whole world knows your name or it doesn't? Because God has freely given you all glory that Jesus had. So if it's not about money and it's not about fame and it's not about a title, what is being rich God about? It's about relationship. Do you know, I was reminded of this recently, God has no pride. I spent weeks ignoring God, doing my stuff, you know, getting my job sorted out, getting my house sorted out, doing these things. And, uh, and then I finally, finally managed to find some free time, so I'm going to have a quiet time. And I just... As soon as I started, as soon as I put on some worship, I felt the presence of God come on me. Just like tonight. I turn my heart to him for one second and he rushes to meet with me. To fill me. To say, hi Mike, you're back. It's good to meet with you. He's not going to go, well I'll wait here until you've served your time. Just do a bit of good works. Do a bit of, you know, service. You know, one of you accumulated enough goodness, I will come and mate with you. He just goes, Mike, so good to see you. How's it been? You know, he just wants to love. just wants to be in relationship. And if you're given the opportunity, he's not proud. He says, yeah, I'll take it. I'll take it. I'll have that. I'll have some time with you. So I wanted to spend a moment and give you a moment just to think. I know preachers are supposed to preach, but I'm going to stop preaching for a second. Because I want to just give you an opportunity to spend a moment with God. And ask him if, the, if there's something that's getting in your way in your relationship with him. Ask him if there's something that you're chasing that's more important than your relationship with him. So I'm just going to ask you to pray this prayer. Holy Spirit, will you show me if there is something in my life that I value more than my relationship with you? Uh, 
So he might show you a picture of something. He might show you a word. He might just give you a sense. So now we're going to pray, Holy Spirit, I give you this thing that I have valued more than you. Please will you take it from me. Because I choose you. Holy Spirit, what are you going to give me instead of that thing? Now, I think for some of you, what Holy Spirit wants to do is actually just give you love. Just wants to give you love. Now, that doesn't mean that you have to stop doing whatever it was that you were doing. When you give it to God, that doesn't mean to say, yes, it's mine, I'm going to get rid of it. Because actually, it may be the thing that you're destined to do. It may be a very right thing to do. It's just your priorities haven't have got a bit out of kilter. So it may be that all he wants is for you to just get the right heart attitude again. But what I'd like you to do over the next week is just have a dialogue with God. What do I do with this thing? How do I manage it? For me, I'm going through a very, very busy work time at the moment. So the conversation I'm having with God is this, this time next year can't be the same. I need to do something different so it doesn't work out that way. And praise God, once you've decorated a house, it's decorated. So I'm hoping that that too will end. But I wanted to end with just a thought. Um, This is something that Jim Elliott said. Um, Jim Elliott was a man who gave his life to evangelize Ecuadorian Indians. Um, And he said, he is no fool who who gives what he cannot keep. To gain what he cannot lose. He is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. Now, he was martyred quite early on in his approach to the Indians. But if you read his story, which is all on the web, um, they came, the whole tribe came to Jesus later on. But it's true for us. You're no fool if you give up that when, what you can't keep. When you die, it's going to be passed on. You don't get to take it. What you can't lose is a relationship with Heavenly Father. And that's what Holy Spirit wants to give you. That's what he wants to dwell in your heart. And that's what I'd like you to spend this week thinking about. How do I make more of him? So what we're going to do is uh, we're going to close uh, in a moment and uh, we have to do some practical things or a practical thing. But I just want to say to you, if you, if you want to make some kind of uh, physical gesture where you want to say, do you know what, I want to actually just end that relationship with this thing that's getting in the way, then my encouragement to you is um, just come forward and we'll pray for you. Um, I say we in faith. Um, and we'll pray for you and we'll just encourage you. 
But just spend time with Jesus and just say, what does this look like? Because in my heart, I know this is the thing that Jesus was more worried about, more concerned about, which is your relationship with him.